it may be hard to believe, but I've got a friend, probably more than one to be fair, but I've got a friend uh, who, when he was a young man, uh, suddenly was called home from university because um, his dad uh, had had a stroke and so he was kind of called home to run after or to look after the, the family business. They were wine merchants and uh, he had no particular interest in going into the business but uh, he was kind of persuaded by his, uh, his family and, uh, and so he became a, a proper, and I can never use the word, say the word properly, sommelier, sommelier, however you say it, a wine taster basically. And so I was just talking to him and asking him, um, because I've got a particular interest in coffee and, uh, and different tastes of coffee, and, uh, and so I was asking, how do you learn the different flavours? You know, you'll watch a cookery programme sometime when they'll say, oh, yes, you need this wine, you know, and it's, uh, you need this particular grape and this year and all that. And how do they know? And, uh, and I was watching somebody as well who's a coffee-tasting expert, and he can tell where the beans are from, whether they're kind of uh, African beans or South American. And, and how do you know? And both of these uh, people, my friend and the others, they basically say the same thing, is that what you have to do is you have to compare and contrast them. It's no good just starting uh, having a sip of one coffee bean or, or one wine or whatever it is. What you have to do is you have to lay a few out. That's why, of course, when they do wine tasting, they, they then spit it out. Because you have to taste them all. And then you compare and contrast the different tastes, one after another. And that's how you kind of build up uh, and kind of desensitize, as it were, your taste buds, and you contrast the smells and the tastes one after another. Well, if you've never tasted black currants, of course, you'll never know that that wine has hints of black currant and elderflower and dustbin juice or whatever, uh, whatever's in there. Until you've tasted and smelt those things, you don't know. You've got to taste and see, don't you? That's basically what he said. That's how I know the different tastes. You taste them, one after another. You contrast and you compare. Have you experienced for yourself the goodness and grace of God? How do you do that? You taste and see that the Lord is good. You experience, tasting is experiencing something, isn't it? And this morning we're looking at this first miracle of Jesus as he turns water into wine. And we some, see something here really of, of what it is to experience God. To experience for ourselves the goodness of God. We're going to see that this morning. Coming back to my, uh, my friend David, he's got this wine merchants, this business, and uh, a couple of months ago they were launching uh, a new gin. Didn't realise actually that he made it himself, and he named it after his daughter. Uh, but uh, how do I know he was launching gin? Because it was all over social media. He was launching it. There was a, a photographer hired to take kind of close-ups of the label, and, uh, and you know, there's then a, there's a glass next to it, and you know, there's kind of a video with bubbles and all that kind of thing, trying to make you want to taste it, showing it in its best light. And it's, it's all over Facebook and Twitter and Instagram. And, uh, and then the launch evening in a, a local pub or somewhere or in the shop or wherever it was, all advertised widely. Come and taste for yourself to see what the product is like. 
a big announcement, an impressive launch event. God comes into the world. The word becomes flesh. The Messiah has come. He has dwelt among us, John starts his gospel with that. And here we have the first miracle of Jesus. If you were in Jesus' disciple team, if you were in the subcommittee that were in charge of the PR of Jesus' ministry launch, I wonder how you would start the ministry of Jesus. How would you launch his ministry upon the Eastern world? What would the first miracle be? Perhaps a resurrection, the ultimate miracle of new life. What a start that would be. Or perhaps a lower key healing of someone perhaps well known. That'll get the tongues wagging. That'll get the crowds flocking to Jesus. Or how about find a multitude of people hungry and feed them, perhaps with some bread or fish, something like that. After all, who doesn't love the opening offer of free bread or free food? Draws the crowds in, doesn't it? That's how we would launch something. That's how we would launch Jesus' ministry. But we see the start of Jesus' ministry and it's none of those things. Really, what is Jesus doing in this wedding? He is rescuing the embarrassment of the groom, who's probably kind of a teenager. And he's rescuing his embarrassment. That's Jesus' first miracle. It's not really earth-shattering, is it? It's not really a, a huge kind of public launch in that way. So, first thing. First question to answer really is this. What is this miracle really all about? What's it all about? Because as we've seen, the setting is a wedding party. We know exactly where it is. It's in Cana of Galilee. We know that Jesus is there, obviously. We know that his mother is there. And we know as well uh, that his disciples were there as well. So John, as he writes this, is of course an eyewitness and is experiencing the wedding in all its glory and in all its lack of wine as well for a while. And so he is writing here as an eyewitness. He is seeing what is going on at first hand. As was traditional, there was a, a master of the banquet, a kind of a, an MC we would have today, or a, a kind of a, well, just somebody looking after the kind of the running of the wedding, kind of a a maitre d' come kind of master of ceremonies. Of course, there's the bride and groom. And it's a simple problem, really, isn't it? They've run out of wine halfway through the wedding. Highly embarrassing for the bridegroom. It's his job, after all, to, to, to sort everything out. It's, it's his wedding day with his bride. The wedding party running out of wine is a, a not a good start to your married life, is it? Day one, oh dear. Imagine being the family of the bride. What has she married? What's she done? All those thoughts that they had, well, they really are true. He really is that useless. He can't even get the amount of wine right. What's going on? So, of course, that's the situation. Highly embarrassing for him. 
Mary, of course, knows who Jesus really is, doesn't she? She knows that Jesus, of all the guests, is no ordinary guest. So she informs him of the potentially uh, embarrassing situation. Verse 3, they have no more wine. They've run out of wine. Now, we need to tread very carefully here as we look at the passage here to see what is going on. Because the, the, uh, the reply of Jesus here, woman, it kind of appears at first hand, doesn't it, to be kind of disrespectful. Um, it, it appears to be kind of, uh, it appears to be some kind of annoyance behind it. But that's, that's not necessarily so. Is Jesus saying here kind of, you know, why me, Mary? Why me, mother, woman? But the key thing here is what he says next. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied. My hour has not yet come. That's what he says. My hour has not yet come. And that's the key, really, to the whole of this situation and understanding the miracle that Jesus performs here and what is going on. My hour has not yet come. Now you think, that doesn't really make much sense. Jesus, they've run out of wine. Mother, why are you bothering me? My hour has not yet come. What? <laughs> what are you talking about, Jesus? Well, Mary then, let's kind of move on. We'll come back to what Jesus says. But Mary then basically tells the servants, do whatever he tells you. And then Jesus, as we know from the story, and it's well known, isn't it? He turns a large amount of, wine, of water rather, into the best wine that there is. Mature, vintage, perfect wine for this wedding. Now, is it, as we're looking at this, is it that after kind of nagging from his mother, that Jesus kind of finally relents and does what Mary wants? You know, Jesus, turn water into wine. No, woman, my hour's not here. Come. Jesus, come on, they've run out of wine. No, no. Jesus, come on. Do it for me. Do it for the disciples. Do it for yourself. Do it for the, for the bridegroom. Do it for the... For the bride, do it for the family. Jesus, come on. No. Jesus, come on. Okay, then I will. That can't possibly be what's going on here, can it? As much as nagging often works, as we all know, uh, the ministry of Jesus, though, shows us, doesn't it, that when he's put under pressure, Jesus does not kind of suddenly relent in any way, does he? If he's the one who is 40 days in the wilderness, withstanding uh, the tempting of of, uh, of Satan, if he's the one who in the Garden of Gethsemane, knowing what is ahead of him, is willing to do the will of his father, despite what is coming up, then surely he can stand against a bit of nagging from his mother. Of course he can. That's not what's going on here. He sets his face like flint towards Jerusalem. He can withstand the request of his mother, can't he? So again, what's going on? Well, when Jesus says, my hour has not yet come, he's talking about his death on the cross. Because every time the phrase is used uh, in John's gospel, my hour, it's used about the same thing. It's used about the death of Jesus on the cross. That's almost kind of a, 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 kind of a code for going to the cross. So Mary says, the wedding's run out of wine. Jesus says, it's not my time to die yet. Now, how do you bring those two things 
together in this wedding. Again, what's going on? And we're really seeing into the heart and the mind of Jesus here. And the context, the place of where we're looking is key here to the understanding. Remember, we're at a wedding. Think about the last wedding that you went to. Weddings are great days, aren't they? And perhaps you're there as a guest and, uh, and you're looking and the, you know, the groom is at the front, nervous and all that kind of thing. And the bride comes down with a dress and you think, you know, look at this, isn't she beautiful? And, and all the, the things that are going on in your mind. And if you've been married, what do you do? You think back to your wedding. Oh, that dress, not quite like mine. My dress was nicer. In my day, that's not the dress that we used to wear. Oh, the groom looks as nervous as I looked on my wedding day. <laughs> I was shaking like that too. You, you think back to your wedding day, don't you? That's what you do. It's natural, isn't it? You think back. Or perhaps if you've never been married, what do you do? You're looking forward to your wedding day. Oh, that dress. I would, definitely wouldn't have that dress. And her hair is up. Why is she putting her hair up? You can you know what goes on in my house in the wedding, don't you? Uh, why didn't she wear her hair down? I, I'd have my hair down. You look forward, do you, don't you, to your wedding day. You sat in the reception. You think, oh, yeah, that's what I'd have as a main course. That's what you do. It's natural, isn't it? What's Jesus doing here? He's no different. Jesus is thinking of his own wedding day. He's thinking of the wedding day. Of him marrying the church, the bride of Christ. That day in the future, that day when we as a church will be united eternally to Jesus Christ. What a day that will be. But how is Jesus going to secure his bride? Jesus answers as he does. Jesus, they've run out of wine. Woman, it's not my time to die yet. My hour hasn't come. I'm not ready to die. Because Jesus is thinking about what it involves for him to gain his bride. We're used to today, don't we? Uh, it wasn't like this in my day. But uh, wedding proposals are grand things now, aren't they? You know, they're videoed and they're on a beach and, you know, somebody has set the beach up with stones or something and, you know, it's the favourite place to go and, you know, and, and there are, perhaps there's a crowd or, but it's videoed to go on social media and, and, you know, there's the grand gestures. It's all very well planned and organised. That's what the groom needs to do to gain his bride, as it were. There's a cost. In Jesus' day, of course, there was, a, there was a price to be paid to the family. You've got to pay the price to gain the bride. Well, what does Jesus do to win his bride, the church? He's got to go to the cross. He's got to go to, to the cross and die for us to gain us as his bride. For that ultimate wedding day of the Lamb and his bride, the church. Jesus makes, of course, the ultimate sacrifice for his bride. It used to be said, didn't it, years ago, that the engagement ring should cost the man a month's wages. A month's wages, a lot of money. But for Jesus, he doesn't give one month, does he? He gives his life. He gives everything. 
And he does it, of course, because of his immense love for us. Immense love. The groom, the potential groom, asks the potential bride to marry him for one reason. He loves her. That's his motivation. Great, deep, real love. Jesus is no different. Jesus loves you. And it's an immense, real, deep love. And he does it to bring us to himself. Revelation 19 tells us of the wedding supper of the Lamb. You know, wedding suppers, wedding receptions, they're just fantastic, aren't they? They're just great days. My mum still talks about the best prawns she ever had in my cousin's wedding in Fonmon Castle by Lantwick Major. She still talks about it years later. We do. They're great days. But nothing will compare to the wedding supper of the Lamb. What a feast that will be. Jesus, the ultimate bridegroom. And us, his beautiful bride, the church. Millions upon millions of his followers in that marriage supper of the Lamb. In the greatest wedding banquet that there has ever been. What a day that will be. What a time that will be. Think for a moment of your most enjoyable days in your life. Great days. Often, if you go to a great wedding, it's memorable. You talk about it for years like my mum does. You do. They're the best. And the wedding supper of Jesus Christ and the church. Well, that's the greatest wedding ever. What a joy they will be. Have Have you tasted of it? Because how intoxicating it will be. How intoxicated. You know... Jesus here is giving, turning water into wine, isn't he? Wine is intoxicating. It's why, you know, they, they talk about, you know, everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. Wine is intoxicating. The more you have, the more you want. But good days are intoxicating, aren't they? Wedding days generally are intoxicating. We had a, a wedding uh, invitation to go to a, a wedding in Cardiff in a month or so's time. We had uh, just an evening do. And you think, oh, it'd be nice, nice to go. wonder what the food's like. And then you see the words. There'll be a barn dance. You think, yes, it'll be fun. But there's, there's something intoxicating. You don't need the alcohol. There's something intoxicating about being on a day where everyone is, is enjoying themselves, where there's love and joy and happiness. You get intoxicated by, by all that love and joy and enjoyment. And, and at the end of the night, you do dance around and you do the, the gay Gordons and all the other dances that you get taught to do in a barn dance. Why? You'd never do that in your living room on a, on a Friday afternoon. But, but in a wedding, it's, everyone else is enjoying themselves and jumping around and it's intoxicating. You join in. This wedding is a taste, just a small taste of what the wedding supper will be. Tasting and see that the Lord is good. The Lord wants us to experience him and to experience the joy of knowing Jesus, knowing his love for you. But it's just a foretaste. It's just a little sip compared to that great day. And so that is why Jesus answers as he does here. My hour is not yet come. It's not my time to die yet. That's, that's what's going on. He's looking forward to his wedding day. What a day that will be. 
and it will be the very best. The foretaste, Jesus turns that water into the very best wine. The very best. That wedding day, that wedding supper of the Lamb will be the very best. Well, I want to apply this now as to what's going on here in two ways. First of all, if you're not yet a Christian, then this passage here and this miracle is a picture of how you become a Christian. It really is. Because in the miracle, what does Jesus use? We see it in uh, verse uh, 6. Nearby stood six stone water jars. They're huge. The kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing. In other words, before you go into the presence of God, you've got to be washed with this, with this uh, water. Just, just washed clean. Physically, on the outside, clean. That's the implement. And then you're ready for worshipping. And this is significant to you, what Jesus does. He uses the water that is used for ceremonial washing to bring you to God. And he uses that and turns that into the very finest of fine wines. What's he doing? He's, he's changing everything, isn't he? It's a picture of a Christian. The bride is a picture of a Christian. You know, brides, when are they at their most beautiful? On their wedding day, isn't it? Sometimes you see, I get the privilege occasionally of doing a wedding, and, and you, you meet the bride and groom beforehand, and, um, and, and you meet them, and, and everything's well, you plan out the wedding. And then on the wedding day, you know, I'm kind of normally at the front and whoever's taking the service is the first one to see the bride. And you think, whoa, they do's. <laughs> That's a shock. Didn't see that coming. Why? Because they're not the most beautiful on their wedding day. Transformed. When one of my daughters got married a couple of years ago, you know, that, that morning, the hairdressers are there. And there's somebody doing makeup there for her and, and for all the... And all the entourage of all the, the bridesmaids and everything else. Why? To make them look as beautiful as possible. Transformed on that morning. Transformed. As beautiful as they can possibly be. Of course, it, it's all on the outside, but, but you've never seen an ugly bride, have you? You don't. No matter what they're like. It's like for that with the church. You know, we're... It's all on the outside on, for the bride, isn't it? It's all outward appearance. But, but for us, inwardly, what are we like? We can be ugly, can't we? We are ugly. Pride, jealousy, bitterness. Very ugly. That's what we're like. Here's a picture of becoming a Christian. What does Jesus do? He transforms us. He makes us look like the most glorious bride there's ever been. How does he do it? He transforms us. He changes us. He cleanses us. He takes those pots of water and washes us from the inside out to transform us into the most beautiful bride that there would ever be. That's what Jesus can do. And that's what only Jesus can do. You know, we can change our outward appearance, can't we? We can change our outward appearance in the way that we act with other people. We can present ourselves in the best possible way. We do that all the time on a Sunday, don't we? And then Monday morning in work and you have a bad morning. And we're not as beautiful inwardly or outwardly in what we say or do as we are on a Sunday. But Jesus can change us. Jesus will change us into the most beautiful bride there's ever been. 
And you see again a picture of how you become a Christian really in, in the predicament here in the wedding. What can the bridegroom do? He's stuck, isn't he? He's stuffed. He's got no more wine. He's run out. He can't run off to Lidl's or something and, and stock up or Majestic Winehouse or uh, Warehouse or something like that. There's nothing he can do. There's nothing he can offer. There's nothing he can bring. He's got empty hands, apart from the bride next to him, who's probably squeezing his hand very tightly at that point. That's what it's like as we come to Jesus Christ. You and I have got nothing to offer him. Nothing at all. That's the gospel. I wonder how long it was in this wedding before the bridegroom kind of accepts the truth of the situation. Oh no. Now I'm in stuck. What am I going to do now? Can't you find any more? You can imagine, can't you, the questions. Have you looked everywhere? And then in the end, he realises there's nothing I can do. And Mary gets to hear about it. Nothing to offer. He's got to admit he's to blame. It is his fault, after all. That's us coming to Jesus Christ. We have nothing to offer, and it is our fault. Our ugliness on the inside. But we're not just willing to take the blame. The bridegroom is willing to take the blame, isn't he? We've got to be willing to take the blame. We've got to say, yeah, it is my fault. I am that ugly on the inside. That bitterness, that thing I can't let go of, that jealousy, that pride. But we've got to be willing to take the credit as well. You've got to be willing to take the credit for what Jesus has done. The bridegroom is willing to take the credit for what Jesus has done. He's not going to go around telling everyone uh, in the thing, well, of course, uh, up to me, I, I run out of wine, but, 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 but there's wine here. No, you just take the credit. The wedding went well. Weeks on, nobody's talking about the wedding and the fact that they'd run out of wine. Nobody's talking about the bridegroom. No, no. He takes the credit. You take the credit for what Jesus has done. Be willing, before God the Father, to accept the life and death of Jesus Christ for you. Willing to take what he has done. To take what Jesus offers you. Imagine being the bridegroom here and saying, well, this wed, this, uh, this wine that Jesus has, has given us, it is the very best wine, but you know, I'm not going to accept it. Give them water. I know it's putrid. I know it's ceremonial water for washing, but give them that because uh, I'm just not willing to accept it. I know it's the finest wine. You'd never do that as the bridegroom, would you? And yet sometimes our pride says, no, I won't take what Jesus offers. Is that you this morning? You know, Jesus tells a parable of the wedding feast. People are invited but didn't go. This morning you are invited to one day be in the greatest wedding that there ever is. Will you go? But then thirdly, finally, and briefly, we've got really here... If you're a Christian this morning, you've got help for your prayer life. Because what Mary does here is very simple, and I, I think a very help, uh, good help for our prayer lives. After all, what's she doing? She is speaking to Jesus. She's speaking to the Lord. She brings a, a request to the Lord, doesn't she? They have, in fact, she's just pointing out, really, the situation. 
She knows who Jesus is. She knows the authority and the power that Jesus has. She knows potentially what Jesus can do. Of course, he hasn't shown it to the world yet. But she knows. Isn't that what prayer is? Knowing the power of what Jesus can do. Knowing what God can do and bringing your request to him. Speaking to him. Speaking to the Lord. They have no more wine. Lord, look at this situation. Lord, the world is dying. Lord, Klidach needs the Lord Jesus. Lord, do something. That's what prayer is, isn't it? It's simply speaking to Jesus. And we could pray about anything. You see it here. This is a wedding, and, and really what Mary is doing is, is taking a bridegroom and, and covering up his embarrassment and his predicament. You know, Jesus can, can heal embarrassment. It may be a, a small thing here, but Mary still asks. Nothing wrong with praying to the Lord about small things. Small to the world, perhaps big to you. Because Jesus cares about the small things. But it's also patient as well here. You see Mary's patience. They have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? My hour has not yet come. What does Mary do? She eventually goes to the servants. Do whatever he tells you. Patience there as well. Can you do something? Jesus doesn't do something immediately, does he? But Mary tells the servants basically to wait and do whatever Jesus says. Mary's willing to wait. Do you have patience in prayer? Willing to wait? I waited patiently for the Lord. It's one of the hardest things to do sometimes, isn't it? But we've got to keep praying. Because I think we have here perspective in prayer. This gives us perspective here. The more we pray, the more perspective Jesus gives us on the world. It's not that we are trying to change God's mind about things. Actually, when we pray, what we find is in conversation with God, that he changes us. That he brings us in line with his will. He gives us that perspective. He makes us realize, actually, that where our joy, true joy, is really found. That it's in him, not in this world. Not even the, the greatest, most attentive husband can bring complete joy. Not even the best parent or the best child or the best bride or the best friend. None of those things can bring you complete joy, can they? At some point, everything and everyone lets you down. But as we pray, and the more we pray, the more we realize, actually, he never lets us down. And I wonder what, we're, what we're, we're settling for in our prayer lives. Are we running out of wine in our prayer lives? Or are we going to Jesus and asking him for more and more and more and helping our prayer lives? You know, sometimes we get so bogged down by the world and the cares of the world that the world affects our prayer lives. We look to see what the world offers, and it offers so much, doesn't it? But it's nothing compared to what Jesus offers. Have you tasted and seen that the Lord is good? Do you keep tasting and seeing in your prayer life how good God is and how good Jesus Christ is? We can settle for bread and water so often when the choicest wine is being offered by the Lord Jesus. The best, not just anything, the best, that's what Jesus offers. And there's a day coming when 
his followers will experience the very, very best. It'll be the best day ever. Question is, will you be there? Have you settled for what the world offers? Or will you be on that very, very best day when Jesus Christ transforms us and delights in us as he marries us in that wedding supper of the Lamb?